testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving, um, socially distanced or whatever you did for your holiday. I think Jackie and I cooked more than we've ever cooked for us and Paul from our gospel community. He came over and Paul won the day with my kids because he made mac and cheese. And so if you guys want some delicious mac and cheese, get Paul's recipe. It's fantastic. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. It looks like the rain's going to hold off for us, and I'm excited about that. Um, if you have a Bible or a scripture journal, go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, that's where we're going to be. Uh, if this is your first time or you haven't gotten a scripture journal yet, just raise your hand, and we would love to give one to you. That's our free gift to you. Uh, we love the Word of God here at Aletheia Church, and we want you guys to have access to that. So, uh, feel free to grab one of those as our gift to you. Uh, I want to start off this morning uh, just reviewing everything we've kind of seen. And when I say everything, I'm, I mean quick. I know that's not really my strong suit, but uh, reviewing everything really, really quickly because this is our last Sunday in this letter to Timothy. We've been studying this since August and we're finishing up uh, this morning. And so back when we started uh, this series in First Timothy back in August, we entitled uh, this series Instructions to a Young Church. And the reason we said that is if you look at the letter, uh, what we see is that Timothy is this young pastor at this relatively new and young church in Ephesus, and that Paul is writing this letter to him to give him some instructions on how to lead that church, uh, how to establish leadership, do all sorts of things. But he's trying to really, in, in, in many ways, just encourage Timothy and encourage that church uh, to be an agent of change in this highly volatile uh, city of Ephesus where there was a lot of um, just a plurality of religions. Uh, there was a, a lot of just turmoil maybe politically in that particular area. And so what we see is Paul meets Timothy and he says to him, okay, starting in chapter one, Timothy, you are in charge. And it is your job as the pastor of this church to make sure that the church is teaching sound doctrine. So make sure that, that you are keeping that in check. And then he moves forward from that and he talks about how, as Christians, how we are to view the law, how, how the law of God is good, and that we, we view God's law as both being good and being uh, an instruction to us, but also ultimately we find its fulfillment in Christ. And that we we view the law both as God's perfect word to us, but that it does not save us. That it's Christ's fulfillment of the law that actually saves us. And how that's a, a corrective uh, teaching from what the Judaizers were teaching as they had moved into Ephesus and had begun to teach there. And then we moved into this next section, which for me was just the most powerful section of the whole letter that we've read so far, is, is he's, ta he's told Timothy the importance of sound doctrine. He's told Timothy the importance of understanding how the law relates to what Jesus has done. And then he shares his own testimony. And what he's doing there with Timothy is reminding him, hey, Timothy, if my life can be transformed, these false teachers and people that are creating division inside the church can be transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ as well. And instead of having this uh, heavy-handed attitude with them and, and the disruption that they're creating in the church, instead, what I want you to do 
right, is share the good news with them and allow the grace of Jesus Christ to transform their hearts and transform their lives the same way that my life was transformed. And he starts giving out all of these really specific instructions to them. And a lot of it centers around leadership. And he, he teaches Timothy on how to uh, qualify both elders and deacons to be able to lead in the church. Uh, he gives instructions on how the church is supposed to honor those leaders and what that is supposed to look like. And then he goes into what accountability for those leaders should look like and how the leaders are supposed to conduct and carry themselves and who should be holding them accountable. And the goal of Paul writing this letter is to be helpful and encouraging and to give Timothy advice on how this young church in Ephesus can be a beacon of hope to what Jesus has done in that city, to be an agent of change in a city that sees all sorts of craziness going on, how they, that they can be encouraged to many ways be the church in a highly volatile situation that they are in. And so as we arrive today at the end of this letter, but what we're going to see is Paul is going to attempt to encourage Timothy in three remaining things. And so I've got three points for you today. They're super simple. They're going to tie in directly with what uh, the charge is from Paul to Timothy here at the end. But he's going to give three kind of final words of encouragement to Timothy and this church. And here they are. The first one is going to be fight the good fight. The second one is to be rich in good works. And the third one is going to be to guard the deposit. He's going to give these three final encouragements or exhortations to the church before he finishes up his letter. And so if you would, let's just bow our heads in prayer for a moment, asking God to encourage us in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time in this letter, I thank you that you have preserved your word for us and that a letter written some 2,000 years ago to a young pastor in Ephesus is encouraging millions and millions of believers for the last 2,000 years. God, your word has remained timeless. And Lord, we ask that you would meet us here this morning, that through your word, you would instruct us, Lord, that you would equip us that you would encourage us and that you would empower us to be the church, to be a city on a hill, to be a light to those that don't know you. God, might we leave here this morning encouraged to uh, live our lives for you and for the glory of your son. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 11 First uh, Timothy chapter 6. Leah read that to us just a moment ago, but I want to read it again for you so you can kind of get this idea of, of how Paul is kind of finishing this letter out. He says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So, so, you know, he starts off and he says there, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And he's, he's talking to Timothy in particular, but what he's doing is he's referencing uh, verse 9 and verse 10. And so we need, to, we need to go back and think about what Pastor Daniel had talked about towards the end of his sermon last week. And, and what we see there in verse 10 is this, 
Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, and so uh, Pastor Daniel talked about this at length last week, and I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, um, to go back and listen to that sermon. He did an excellent job kind of unpacking uh, what Paul was teaching there. Uh, and you, so you can go back and, and watch that on YouTube. But I just want to make one note about something that he had mentioned last week, because it's going to help us understand both what we see here in verse 11, but also how we kind of move into uh, verse 16, verse 17, verse 18, and, and that area as well. And so Pastor Daniel mentioned how we, we tend to view money as Christians and, and really just as human beings in general, kind of in two, two spheres or two planes. We either tend to view money as something that is evil and something that's not to be pursued, or we tend to view money as something to be gained at all costs because we look at the security and whatever else that it may provide. And, and biblically, kind of the way that this, this fleshes itself out is I, I think the church probably struggles with this the most, that uh, there's kind of two different forms of theology that form on money. One is a prosperity theology, which says God wants to give you everything and you can just ask God for it. And as long as you have enough faith, God is going to give it to you. You can name it, you can claim it, and God's going to provide it. And so the, the teaching there is that God's almost kind of like this genie in a bottle where if you want something bad enough and you, and you have faith that God will give it to you, God's going to show up and give it to you. And, and the danger of that teaching is that God in nowhere in his word promises to give us wealth and prosperity and all these many things. And so what often ends up happening inside those particular theological spheres or circles is that people move into those, those circles, not because they sincerely love God and they want to pursue him, but because they want the things that they think God can give them. And when, inevit when inevitably, right, God doesn't give them the wealth beyond their wildest dreams, right, they shrink and pull back away because they think God has failed them. And either God has failed them or as the church in those spheres often teaches, they teach that, oh, well, you lack the faith. And so the problem is with you, not with God. And in both ways, right, what we see there is a desire to love the gifts above the giver of the gift, Right? And so th this is a common problem with prosperity theology inside of the church or in, in some particular areas of the church. But there's an equally right, problematic teaching on money that comes from the church, and it's called a poverty theology. And what that teaches is that money is evil and having money is evil and that really you should seek to live your life as poor as possible because if you have money, right, you, you must have gained it in, in some terrible way or that you love the money and that you want to serve money above God. And obviously scripture does teach that we can't serve money and God, but scripture actually doesn't teach that money in and of itself is evil. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 10, Right, Paul is abundantly clear. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? What is the problem in that passage? Not the money, the love of money is the problem. That is something that Pastor Daniel was trying to get across to us last week is the problem is centered around the love of money and what money can often provide, not necessarily money itself. And so Paul writes here when you get to verse 11, and what he's saying and, and, and what he's trying to encourage Timothy is he's, he looks at, he, he writes this letter, he says, Timothy, I'm, I'm encouraging you 
flee from the love of money and all the problems that it can create. Flee from it. Don't, don't have bad theology in the sense that, that money is going to provide you everything you need, but don't view money as in and of itself evil. As a matter of fact, economically, we, guys, you, you need some money to be able to make it. <laughs> to be able to provide a roof over your head, to be able to eat, right? Like money itself transactionally is something that is necessary, right, in society. But don't love money and believe that the lie, believe in the lies of it, that it can provide some sort of security and sustenance to you that only God can provide. Because the love of money leads to all sorts of things, right? And the language that, that Paul uses there for Timothy for, for the love of money is, is not flattering, right? He calls the love of money a snare. He calls it senseless and harmful. He says it leads to ruin and destruction. And so Paul wants us to understand that while money in and of itself is not evil, the love of money can lead to all sorts of issues. And so he says to Timothy, Flee the pursuit of money and your love of it, and instead do this. And, and this is where it starts getting interesting, right? He says, fight the good fight in verse 12 of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So let's, let's take a step back and look at the language there. Fight the good fight. What's he, what's he saying to Timothy there? Saying, be ready for battle. Right? As, a, as a pastor of this church, be ready for battle. I think this is something, as I was processing through this last week and early this week, uh, writing this sermon, that I think this is something specifically in 2020 that has been laid bare before me more than anything else in my life over the, the last 34 years. And that's that, especially here in the U.S., we live such a secure and comfortable lifestyle naturally and culturally that we bring that into the church and we fail to realize that when God talks about Christians living out their lives here on earth, that it's going to look a lot more like a battle than it is going to look like a cushy, comfortable life. I have a, I have a cousin who um, is a youth pastor up in Virginia, and one of his hobbies is knowing the ancestry of our family. And so I've learned things about my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents that I would have never have known if it wasn't for him and, and this hobby that he has. And something that he said recently that really piqued my interest was that he was taking care of the graveyard for our family up in the, 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 the foothills and the mountains of Virginia and West Virginia, kind of right there on that line. And as he was kind of cleaning and taking care of the cemetery, he said, you know, I've, I've had time to reflect through 2020 and think through all the things that my great-grandfather went through. My great-grandfather had 12 kids. And of those 12 kids, two of them died before the age of 24. And as they raised those 12 kids, they worked on a farm. And part of that time was through the Great Depression, where you weren't sure where your next meal was going to come. And of those 12 kids and the two of them that passed away, three of them were triplets that all had Down syndrome. 
And, he, and his point was, as I've thought through the difficulty of what we as a society and as humans have faced in 2020, I look back and think the difficulty that we've faced this year, how, how it's really not any more difficult than what people have been facing for thousands and thousands of years, because the reality is, is that life is hard sometimes. And I think one of the things that's kind of been lost in the mix of of how difficult 2020 has been, maybe even for some of you guys here this morning, is God kind of tells us in his word, hey, that's reality of a broken world that we live in. That what what this should kind of cause us to see is is not, you know, I I think the tendency would be to look at my great-grandparents and say, oh, you know, we're all just a bunch of babies whining about how hard 2020 is. I don't think that's the lesson here. But maybe the lesson to take away is that when we look at how difficult 2020 has been for many of us, and we look at how maybe difficult it was for my grandparents and and maybe my great-grandparents and maybe some of your family and the things that you've walked through over the last decade or two, Right, that we should look at the brokenness and see something's off here. This isn't how God designed it. And since that design has been fractured, it should cause us to long for God to set things right instead of security in the here and now. As I think through how difficult this year has been and then I see what what. Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, I know how hard it is for you as a young guy to be leading this church, to be dealing with all the things that you're dealing with inside this church at Ephesus. Be ready to fight. He doesn't tell him to hide out. He doesn't tell him to find more security. He doesn't tell him to take the easy road or look for ways to make life easier on himself. No, he says, Timothy, fight the good fight because you are going to be in for a battle if you're going to be a pastor and be a part of the church, the body of Christ. And we can get lost in what this battle looks like, but if you turn over to Ephesians chapter six, Paul lets the the church at Ephesus know exactly what they're dealing with. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here Paul's writing to the exact same church that Timothy is pastoring, and he says to them, guys, non-believers in Ephesus are not your enemy. The Roman government is not your primary enemy. Our primary enemy is Satan. And our calling as followers of Jesus is to know that we are constantly at war with an enemy that seeks to kill and destroy. Things on earth should not feel comfortable all the time or like we are at home because we are not at home. This is not our home if you are a follower of Jesus. We are at war with the devil of hell who is attempting to thwart the expansion of Jesus' church. And if you are going to be faithful to the calling of God on your life, expect difficulty, not an easy road. 
And I know there's a tendency, right, for us to, to be afraid of over-spiritualizing things. And, you know, one of the things that was funny to me when I first moved to the South is you, you'd see somebody do something bad and they'd be like, the devil made me do it. And I'm like, what does that even mean? But I, I think we've become so afraid of over-spiritualizing things and so afraid of talking about angels and demons and, and giving them too much credit that we've completely forgotten the fact that Satan exists and his entire goal is to thwart the advancement of the gospel. And if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, Satan's entire goal is to rob you of the joy that you have in Christ by getting you to worry about politics more than you should, by getting you to worry about money more than you should, by getting you to worry about your health more than you should, by causing you to question your salvation when you fall into sin or temptation, that his entire strategy is to rob you of the joy that Jesus has bought for you with his own flesh and blood. And Paul's encouragement to Timothy is, be ready for battle, man. It's not even right this robust strategy. He just says, be ready to fight. Be ready to fight. Right? If you, if you want to pastor a church, if you want to lead them to joy in Christ, if you want to do all the things that God asks of us in Christ, be ready to fight because it's going to be hard. Doesn't mean it's going to be hard every single second of every single day, but it's going to be hard because Satan will constantly try to rob you of your joy in Christ. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. I'm called to fight the good fight. Well, how? how? How would I do that? Well, look at what he says. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called up and about which you made the good confession. It says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. But he's, he's, he's just saying to Timothy, know your identity. Know who you are in Christ Jesus. It, some of you guys may have been around long enough to hear me throw around one of these buzzwords that I use all the time. And I, I got to catch myself sometimes because I realize I get really churchy sometimes and even like nerdy pastor speak and I'll drop a term like gospel centrality. And someone will be like, what, what does that mean? I'm like, well, let me define it for you, <laughs> right? Because one of the things I'll say regularly is when someone asks me like, hey, what is Aletheia about or what's something that you guys care about? And I'll list a number of different things. I'll list our values and our mission, but I'll, then I'll say things like, you know, but for, for me personally, you know, in my life, gospel centrality is a huge issue. And then people will look at me like, you know, what is that? It's, it's like you're speaking a foreign language. And when I say that, what I mean is, well, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us, how Jesus died in my place and took the wrath of God on his own shoulders and then gave me his righteousness and adopted me into the family of God through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's the, the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. But when I say centrality, what I mean by that is I mean that message, that good news of what Jesus has done applies to every area of my life, every area. There's a tendency for us inside, I think the church, but really just in life in general, to understand like maybe the, the nuances or the message of the gospel, but not understand its application to all of life. And so the gospel gets reduced down to memorizing some facts and some things in scripture and making sure you know the theology correctly. 
But just as important as understanding the truth about what God did in Christ is knowing about what that means for you as a follower of Jesus. And what Paul is saying here to Timothy is it's not just knowing some facts about the gospel, but being able to apply those to your life when things get hard is why it's so important. Some important reasons for this is if you think about what Paul says in Romans, right? He says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? He doesn't say the gospel is an important message that we must memorize the truth of. No, he says, the gospel is the power of God to save people. That means both to be a message that takes dead people to life, but it also means for those of you that are a follower of Jesus, it is what is the power source to keep your identity rooted in what God has done for you, right? The gospel reminds you when you're struggling with habitual sin that you can still put that sin to death and that God can free you from it. The gospel is what can give you hope and peace at the loss of a family member. The gospel is what can give you hope and peace when you've lost a job or when you're wrestling with the medical issues of a young child. Right, Going back to the hope and promises of God in Christ that you are his and that you are adopted and that you are his child is what it means to be gospel-centered. Not just remembering some facts and saying we have to know these things, but knowing, hey, what God has done for me through Jesus permeates every area of my life. It permeates my personal relationship with God. It permeates how I relate to others. It permeates how I deal with sin in my life and put it to death. It gives me hope that when I fail, Jesus still died in my place and offers me new life and a way forward. It is only in the gospel that our identity has a firm foundation in Christ. And so when Paul says to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you're called, he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, your hope is not in how you pastor, not how great the church is, not how great the doctrine or teaching is. No, your hope is in Christ Jesus and what he has done for you. Take hold of that and never lose sight of it. And then keep the commandment unstained. He's basically saying to Timothy, hold the good news and do not sway from it. Jesus himself did not sway from telling the truth of who he was when he stood before Pontius Pilate, knowing that that was going to be his death sentence. Hold fast and provide people the hope that is only found in Christ because Jesus has secured for us salvation and Jesus will bring about our glorification. Be encouraged because God has secured your salvation and be ready to fight the good fight and continue the work of building the church. And so he, he, he finishes, right, this letter with this first encouragement, right, Timothy? Be ready to fight. It's going to be hard. There are going to be days 
where people won't agree with you or you are struggling or chaos seems to be ensuing all around you or on it, you might be in the middle of a, a global pandemic. Fight the good fight. Remain faithful. Keep your faith in Christ. Don't lose hope. Guys, can I just maybe remind us of something? Coronavirus is not bigger than Jesus. It's not. If you, if you get on the news this afternoon, you might feel that way. It's not bigger than him. It's not. And Paul is encouraging Timothy and encouraging us, don't lose sight of that. Fight the good fight. Remember your identity in Christ and run after that. Then he moves into his second point because he's kind of got three little paragraphs here that he finishes on. And after he reminds us, right, to keep our identity rooted in Christ, look at what he says next, starting in verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to share, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Right? And the second point he makes to Timothy, be rich in good works. Right? Let, me, let me start here. Because if you read these three verses, right, what you're going to see is Paul is addressing wealthy Christians in this paragraph. He's saying to wealthy Christians, hey, here's how you should live your life out. And I think if I say that to you, okay, Paul's addressing wealthy Christians, most of you guys are going to be like, well, that does not include me. Right? A lot of you guys are students and are like, I am not wealthy at all. And for most of the rest of us, right, we would consider ourselves to be middle-class Americans. Right? And so we'd say, well, that doesn't include me either. I'm not wealthy. Right? I, I, I've got a mortgage. Um, I'm making my payments or whatever else, but I would not consider myself to be wealthy. Right? Let me start by, by saying this. Most Americans are rich by the standards of the rest of the world. Even, even those b- below the poverty line in the U.S. are far richer than most of the rest of the world. I've been in country where people literally don't know where their next meal is coming from. I, I meet very, very few people in the U.S. that live that way. Very, very few. And that, that's not to... For, that is not me trying to say like, hey, we're so ungrateful and whatever. I, I recognize that there are real hardships for people in the U.S., especially with the way uh, that, that our economic system is set up. But compared to the rest of the world, even most of those below the poverty line here in the U.S. are way richer than the rest of the world. And so by American standards, we may not be rich, but I think for the most of us here this morning, this exhortation from Paul is still going to apply. Right, And Paul's encouragement to Timothy in the church of Ephesus in regards to money is, is to be rich in good works. That's what he calls them to do. Be rich in good works. And he kind of shares three things there for us to kind of view as indicators on what that might look like. In verse 17, right, he encourages us, uh, encourages us to hope in God, not in money. Right? He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
It says, do not be haughty, which is another word for conceited. And basically what he's saying there is that there can be a tendency amongst us, especially the more economically stable you might become, <laughs> to believe that you are the reason that that money came about. And that you begin to trust in yourself and you begin to trust in that money more than you trust in God. And, and Paul is basically saying, that is a dangerous road to walk down. Right? Solomon himself warns his sons about this in Proverbs chapter 23. Look at what he says to his son. Uh, he says this starting in verse 4 of Proverbs 23. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward, toward heaven. Right? Remember, <laughs> Solomon was probably the wealthiest king in Israeli history. And here you have probably the wealthiest king in the history of Israel saying to his sons, do, do not pursue wealth at all costs. Don't, don't make that your chief goal. It can be gone like that. It can disappear in a heartbeat. And as Paul, as Paul encourages Timothy here, I see a lot of the same encouragement that James shares with us in James chapter one. This is one of my favorite favorite passages in all of scripture, right? But James is writing to these churches and look at what he says about um, our, our approach to money as Christians, starting in verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the, of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and, and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Right, James addresses two different types of Christians there in that passage. He addresses the poor and he addresses the rich. Right, And this is one of those times again where I'd say like, this is why the gospel is so powerful because it speaks to the poor and it speaks to the rich, but it speaks to them in different ways, reminding them of their identity in God through Christ. Right, look at what he says. He says, let the poor boast right, in their riches. Right, what is he saying? He says, no matter how poor you may be in this life, you have an inheritance waiting for you with the king of kings and creator of the universe in heaven because of what Christ has done for you. Boast in that inheritance because it's far better than anything the world has to offer you anyway. You can live in the most lavish palace on earth and it is nothing compared to the joy and riches of being with God for eternity. And then he says to the rich, boast in your humiliation, right? What does that mean? <laughs> he says, it doesn't matter how much money you have and how much privilege you get because of that money on this side of eternity. You need Jesus just like everyone else that your sin has separated you from a holy God and no amount of money can buy God's favor. And that you need Jesus just as much as anybody else. Poor or rich, we are in the same place finding our hope ultimately in Christ because we are all needy spiritually, no matter what our economic standing is now. 
And this was, the, this was the issue that the rich young ruler had when he came to Jesus, right? If you look at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, it says, and he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life, eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. I love Jesus, right? He just drops all these little hints about who he is. <laughs> and he's just like, hey, call me good. You realize what you're doing there, right? All right, keep going, Kevin. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Right, the problem for the rich young ruler and, and as I've heard this taught over the years is people will often teach and say, oh, well, he loved money and he loved money more than he loved God. And that, that is true in this particular instance. But the real problem is, is he does not see his own neediness for Jesus. Because he is rich and has many possessions, he fails to see his ultimate need, which is in Christ. And so he fails to give up what he views as his security to become most secure in Christ. And this is the self-sufficient danger of being wealthy as we see pointed out in scripture over and over again. And the beauty of what we see here from Paul is Paul attacks this and says, the gospel attacks our view of self-sufficiency, hope in God over hope in money. Because we are saved by Jesus' merit, not our own. We are all rich in God's grace, not in money. And we are all needy spiritually because of our sin, but have great hope because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Paul encourages us not to focus on our finances, but to hope in God who bestowed on us an inheritance far beyond anything we could acquire ourselves. And in that, Right? He reminds us, no matter what our financial picture is, is to hope in God, and then in verse 18, to be generous givers. It says the mark of being a follower of Jesus is that we hope in God, not in money, and that, that we are generous. He says, be rich in good works. He's like, hey, be known for how generous you are. He doesn't say how much to give. He doesn't say, yeah, 10% here, 5% there. Uh, give this every year to a certain missions organization. No, he just says this, be known for generosity. People ask me frequently, Kevin, how much do I need to give to the church? What, what, do, what do I need to be giving to the, to the missions? What do I need to do? And I just always say, the call of the New Testament is generosity. One of the interesting things is that people always say, well, what about the Old Testament tithe? Isn't that 10%? Actually... Right, if you look at it more closely, it's closer to like 23 to 25% with what they would give to the temple. So if you want to hold to that, by the way, the church would love for you to hold to that standard. But the New Testament standard is one of generosity. It's where you're looking for the needs of those inside the church 
and helping God's people. It's where you give to the mission of God's church. And it's where you look to help those so you might have an opportunity to share the good news with others. Right? The call of God right, is that we hope in him, not in money, and that we're known as being generous givers. And then in verse 19, he calls us to store up treasure in heaven. What we do in this life matters for eternity. I think we see that over and over again throughout the scriptures, that what we do in this life matters. And notice what Paul says. He says, so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. True life is a heart fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. And that we seek to take hold of that in all that we do. Paul exhorts the church, Ephesian church, if you want to make an impact on this earth for Jesus, don't love money, love God. Use your money. Use the wealth that God has given you to make much of Jesus and to serve others. But place your hope in Christ, serve others and look forward to eternity. And so he tells us, right, as we move through this, right, to fight the good fight, right, to, to hope in God, right, over money, right? He ultimately shares that by saying, be rich in good works. And then, right, he moves into our third and final part. Guard the deposit, right? Look at verse 20 and 21 of 1 Timothy chapter six with me. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. He says, oh, Timothy, right? And whenever you see that word, oh, like that, all you need to know is that Timothy is showing emotion. <laughs> He's saying, Timothy, you have no idea how much I care about you, how much I care about the church that you pastor in Ephesus. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. It's super important. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. I love it when, Tim, when Paul uses examples that I can easily relate with. I used to be in the banking world, so this one made a ton of sense to me the moment I read it, right? As a, as a banker, right, if you go to a bank and you make a deposit, you are making some assumptions when you make that deposit. One, you're assuming that the bank is gonna take your money, and when they take your money, they're going to protect it so that when you go back, you can get your money back. This was a problem the banks ran into in the 20s. They took your money and they invested it poorly and lost all of it. And then when people went to go to the bank to get their money back out, guess what wasn't there? Their money, right? Because the deposit was not guarded faithfully and properly. And it led to financial ruin really worldwide back in the 20s. And so what we see here is Paul is saying to Timothy, guard the deposit that was put in you. But the deposit that was put in Timothy was not financial. It was of eternal nature. Right, Paul, the, Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, the gospel is the deposit. What God has promised to you through Jesus Christ is the deposit. Be faithful to it. Guard that deposit. 
because it's far more beautiful and important than anything this life has to offer. When you think about it, right, the good news of what Jesus has done far outweighs anything this life offers. Right, God, God says to us in his word from pretty early on, I mean, by the time you get to Genesis chapter three, right, that the human race has looked at God, that God has created all things. And at the end of every, everything he's created, at the end of it, he says, it is good. And then by the time you get to Genesis 3 and you have the serpent talking to Eve, you have Adam and Eve really internally questioning, is God really good? Can I trust him? Is is he really good to us? And in this, right, you see rebellion as human beings try to take control and wrestle it away from God and provide their own security and provide their own hope and provide their own stability and to try to make life good around them. And everything that we see after Genesis 3 is just this fracturing of the shalom and peace that God had created and instituted in Eden. And all throughout the Old Testament, what you read is God trying to lead his people back to him because only in him will they find hope and peace and restoration. And all you see is time and time again, God's people running back to him and then running away again because they wanna be self-sufficient apart from God. And finally, we see throughout the Old Testament, these promises of, of one day where God will take hearts made of stone Right? And he'll fix them. And where he'll put his word, his word upon our heart. And where he'll rescue and save and wipe those whose sin is crimson stained. He'll that whole wash it white as snow. Right? These are all promises made in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you have the message that your ancestors looked forward to for thousands of years, the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah who would come and reconcile us to God the Father. Guard that deposit. Guard that message. Make that your chief aim to share that good news with everyone. And here's how you can avoid that. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions called knowledge, but instead tell of how good Jesus is and be the church. Church, we have seen a lot of instruction and encouragement as we have studied this letter. And I think personally, our church here in Gainesville will be better for having studied this letter together. I do. I think... We'll have better leaders. I think you guys as the church will better understand the magnitude of what God has done for you, but also what God asks of you as his church. And that for as long as you're here in Gainesville, but for wherever God will take you, right? God will lead you to be faithful to him and his mission. But his final charge to us this morning is to find our hope in him and nothing else. To be generous and witness to that hope and guard that and make that our chief concern. And if we do that, 
we will make much of Jesus together. We will be a church centered around making much of Jesus Christ and proclaiming the glory of what he has done for us. As we wrap up 2020, will we pray, will we commit to praying together as a church that God would help us to do this, to place our hope in Jesus, to be generous together, to guard the gospel. If we do that, we'll be faithful and the church will do exactly what it's done for thousands of years. See the rise and fall of kingdoms. See the rise and fall of economies. See the rise and fall of pandemics. But the gospel endures and Christ's church endures forever. Let's pray that God will use us to carry on that good news. A testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission, which is to see the gospel in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life.